Hey everybody, thanks for tuning into this week's podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm a part of the core community at CMYK. We're a bunch of people in Billings, Montana, creating space and community where belief and doubt move forward together. I've been part of CMYK for a few years now, and I absolutely love how it's affected my life. It's changed how I approach spirituality. Um, It's just so refreshing. I love it. But before we jump in, I want you to know everything we do at CMYK depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you who are working with us to live a more beautiful way forward together. So if you love what CMYK is up to and want to be part of the community on a financial level, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to cmykchurch.com. Through your donation, we are able to continue our work and to give away more and more to those in need around us. You can easily give a one-time gift or choose to be a regular part of our creation through a monthly gift of any amount. To those who are giving, thank you. And with that, let's jump into this week's talk. I think most of us know this. Uh, we are in the midst of a series entitled Our Favorite Stories, and uh, the next few weeks we're going to be doing something unique and different uh, with this uh, series that we've been in uh, for the last couple months now, and that is, um, rather than me or Seth, as he's shared um, a couple times as well, us sharing our favorite stories, uh, I thought it would be great for us to have some conversations with some of you about your favorite stories and why they're your favorite stories. Remember, this whole series is driven around this idea that there's this thing called the Bible or scriptures that is filled with stories. And many times we look at these stories and they can feel very archaic. They can feel very uh, childish on some levels. They feel very ancient uh, on other levels. And we can be wondering, is there, for a true, like, thinking human being, is there any resonance to these stories to be found at all for my life here in 2020? Or is it something that should just let it be in the pew at some church collecting dust and that's where these stories belong? And so uh, we've been spending the last few weeks talking about those different stories. And tonight I'm so excited uh, that we get to hear from somebody that I think um, not only has a really great story to talk about, but she has an incredible voice and is doing so much uh, great work, not only in CMYK, but our community and city as a whole. So would you please welcome my friend and yours, Kendra Shaw, as she comes up to share with us tonight. Uh, You can go and grab that mic if you want, Kendra. So before we get going, I just want to make sure, uh, do I have to address you as Councilwoman Shaw the whole time, or is, of course I do. Uh, some of you probably know Kendra was recently uh, elected and then sworn in as one of our council women, council person, people, not quite sure the specific term. So she's been sitting on council city member. council yeah. and uh, just so excited uh, to have you here and all the work that you're working to do in the city and community. So all I'd say, Kendra, we, I asked you uh, a few days ago, hey, what's the story for you when you think about um, this thing called the Bible and the stories within that that kind of comes to your mind and resonates with you still to this day? What is that story? So the first story that came to mind was um, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And I was kind of thinking to myself, okay, why am, I, why am I so drawn to this story? What is it about it? And I was thinking this talk was going to go in the direction of like the symbolism of walls and walls coming down and how beautiful that is and important. Um, And then I started digging into the story as an adult, and I pulled out my study Bible, which I haven't I haven't honestly looked at in a very long time. And I started reading through kind of all the commentary that they had on this story. And this character, um, who's a prostitute, 
just really jumped out at me in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And I found myself like starting to do all this cultural research about what was actually happening at the time. And I realized like, yes, the, the walls coming down is, is a very important symbolic piece, but kind of what led up to that, I think is a piece we don't necessarily always explore and was really interesting for me. So all that to say, if you haven't heard the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, how many of you know the song, Joshua, about the Battle of Jericho? Jericho. Like just one person? Okay. All right, a couple of you. Thank you for playing along. I was just... Okay, all right. Anyway, over here, all right. Uh, anyways, this is a story that probably many of us grew up with. Maybe we saw the Veggie Tales uh, around that. Um, but it's this story about Joshua, who is the newly appointed leader of this not yet nation, but a group of people known as the Israelites. And they are going into a territory that is not their own, that they're going to claim as their own. And it's a very tribalistic ancient culture. And the idea was that you go, you get to move into where you want to move into. And if you have a bigger gun, let's say, or a bigger army, or you can overpower whoever's there, that is now yours. And you get to claim it as yours. And even more than that, it's an ancient culture that deals with if you defeat another nation, typically these nations have different gods or different ideas of God. And so for you to win and beat this other nation, it meant that your God was more powerful and stronger than this other God. And so the, the, the story of Joshua and the battle, which wasn't much of a battle, of Jericho, was Joshua coming against, uh, and his army coming against the people of Jericho. And rather than a traditional battle of you know big swords and clubs and going out and whoever had the bigger army won, it was this story of Joshua marching around with the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, marching around the walls of this fortified city. They marched around six days, and then on the seventh day, when they marched around, Joshua uh, had all the troops and everybody shout at the top of their lungs their joy and celebration, and the walls came down because of that, and they were able to ransack and take out Jericho. That's pretty much the story. But for you... What resonated was not so much this story of these walls come tumbling down, uh, as you originally thought, but had to deal with this character that was a prostitute, which I love because Kendra, at the end of the day, is saying, like, if I could talk about any story in the Bible, it's about prostitution. That's what I think we need to talk about There's tonight. so many women prostitutes in the Bible. It's just... I, it was hard to pick your favorite. It was hard to pick your favorite. It's kind of like the, super, the Marvel comic heroes. It's just like the right. prostitutes of the Bible. Which so one many. do I love the most? Um, so here's kind of how the scriptures, just to give everybody some context, here's how the scriptures introduce this character of Rahab. It's found in Joshua chapter two. It says this, and Joshua and the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they're outside the land. They haven't done anything yet. And they know they need to go kind of see what they're up against before anything can happen. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, I have read this story so many times, but when Kendra and I were talking about this, I love Kendra's commentary on this. Kendra, what is your thought here? Well, okay, so first of all, um, as, I, as I read this and I'm reading through the study notes in my Bible and it's saying things like, what are Rahab's strengths? And then it's like, what are her weaknesses and moral failings? She was a prostitute. And I immediately kind of thought like, hold on a second. Like, first of all, this is a society in which women really don't have much power. 
Prostitution back then is probably a lot more akin to what we think of human trafficking today. And then secondly, you look at this story and it's like, there's no moral commentary on these two soldiers who the first place they go is a brothel when they show up in this new town. It's totally like a business trip that they went out yeah. of town, the wives were not present, and the first place that they find themselves, we met this woman. Let's just, see, let's just go, let's just show up at the brothel, yeah. I've never noticed that before, but the immediate thing that they do is they go to a prostitute. So it's, these guys got something going on. Okay, so anyways, here they are. They have lodged in this inn, uh, which, yep, yeah, okay. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search all the land. So it's known that these spies are here and it's known that Rahab, this prostitute, is housing these spies, okay? So not too secret of a brothel is happening here. It says, but the, women had, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, again, fortified city, uh, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. She had brought them up to the roof, so she kind of instigated this. She brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So essentially, these men are still hidden in the city, but all the pursuers have left the city. And then what we find out later is that Rahab encourages these men and says, okay, give them some time to go pursue, get a good distance from the city, and then don't go that way, go this way, and she helps them escape the city without ever being found by any of the officials of the city. Now, the outcome of this, and I think this is where, Kendra, the story starts to resonate with you, the outcome of this is that Rahab is spared unlike anyone else in the city of Jericho. That when the battle happens and the walls come tumbling down, Rahab and her family are the only people that survive this attack. And the survival is found because of her help and her service to these men from the nation of Israel. That she basically has chosen a side and it's not the side of her people, the Canaanites. It's not the side of her city, Jericho. It's the side of these other men. And she's saying, I'm going to help and I'm going to serve you. And because of that, her and her whole family are saved. Why is this something that resonates with you? Yeah, I, I, put my, I tried to put myself kind of in this in this woman's perspective. And so I started doing all this research about the culture and kind of the really interesting pieces that I found were, first of all, and, and there's, Matt knows more about the history than I do, and there's all these different archeologists have different, you know, they're like, there were tons of walls, there was just the one, but there in this time, it was very common for cities to be built with like, kind of the most elite lived in the center and there was a wall around them. And then the slightly less elite lived a little bit farther out and there might've been another wall around them. Rahab lived on like either on the very border wall or like right up against it. That's, that's kind of what they think and had maybe a window that was like went straight out into you know no man's land, potentially. Um, so that for me was really interesting because I was thinking, okay, so here's a woman who's very marginalized in society how does she go from the place that she's at to essentially betraying her culture, the entire culture that she's been brought up in? But when you look at it from her perspective, I thought, this isn't a culture that really works for her. I mean, she she's not part of the elite. And then if you research it all about like the 
religion of the Canaanites, they were worshiping idols and they had some very gruesome practices. They were, temple prostitution was very common. They burned babies alive as a ritual sacrifice. Um, it was it was not great. And I think as a woman in that society, if she's thinking, okay, this is the best that this is going ever going to be for me. It's never gonna get better. I'm already the lowest of the low. I'm, I'm both physically oppressed and economically, socially oppressed. And then along comes this like army that's saying, hey, there's a better way. Maybe there's a God that doesn't believe in these things. Maybe there's a God that says child sacrifice is actually wrong, you know? And how, how does in her head that kind of, I just thought that kind of would click for me. But for me, it was really like, it's because she's not part of the, the man, I went back and forth on what you call this, but like the cultural majority is what I kind of landed on. Yep. She's not part of the cultural majority. So whatever's happening in the society isn't benefiting her. Like I think you see for the elite people, if even if they're sacrificing their own babies, they're getting richer or it's, they have houses, they have food in whatever way it kind of is working for them. Um, but if you're not experiencing that in your culture, and that's very common for marginalized groups to not experience what the cultural majority is experiencing, um, I think it would be very powerful <laughs> to have this idea of, even though it's gonna destroy everything you know, and that piece being really hard, um, having the idea of a more equal society I think, you know, in, in whatever way that that was thought of, but it's gonna be a society in which potentially the walls are going to both physically and metaphorically come down. It's, it started to make more sense to me why she might make this decision. Yeah, which I think is really fascinating because, so again, my training, and she mentioned it in her study Bible, anytime you look at and you hear this story of Rahab, it's, it's always mentioned directly attached to her name, the prostitute, that this is who she is seen as. She's just a prostitute. And many of us, all of us, <laughs> I'm sure, grew up in some sort of culture that when that is attached to your name, you are not a person of significance or influence or power or importance at all. That actually is something that's meant to put you on the bottom, which your study Bible kind of references. Like, I mean, she did some good stuff, but she was a prostitute. But she was so, a prostitute yeah. the whole time. So yeah, yeah she, she was a moral failure. Yeah. Which is really interesting because the scriptures actually have zero moral commentary on that role of prostitution. They just are simply saying, this is who she was. Now we have some cultural morality that we bring to it, but the scriptures themselves are not communicating that. In fact, what they continue to do, there's a couple different times in the New Testament, uh, particularly in Hebrews, there's this passage of scripture in the New Testament book of Hebrews called the Hall of Faith uh, by most people. And it's basically representing who are some of the most significant people in Israel's history within the New Testament. They're telling these stories. And one of them that they tell is this person, Rahab. She's not even a part of the family, but they say this about her. This is Hebrews 11, chapter 31. It says, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, <laughs> did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, this is huge. She's put in this, in this case, in the scriptures, which you've got to understand, like significance within Judaism to be put in this place of someone like Abraham, someone like Moses, to say, look at how significant this person was in the story of Israel. There's something about that for me, and I think for you, that Kendra kind of 
I mean, really sparked in me, like we have this understanding to just write someone off because of who they are as some sort of moral failure, while the scriptures are trying to say something completely different, and that's what Kendra's pointing at. There's someone that was experiencing oppression and chose to do something with and in that oppression. And rather than being found as someone that's just like, oh, the way it is is the way it's always going to be, she found this different way of life, these Israelites showing up, and an opportunity for something different, and she was willing to go against what was mainstream, understood, no, this is the way it's always going to be, and she's willing to stand up to that power or the man or do something for the sake of this better way for herself and for her family, because all her family is saved in this moment. She was not just a prostitute. She was someone that was willing to do something, stand up to oppression for the sake of herself and those around her. That's a crazy, powerful story. It's really powerful, I think. Yeah, that the, the piece about, and, and I always, I kept coming back to the story piece when we talked, but this piece of like, she, she has this story to tell. It's not a story her culture can hear or understand or take her side on. They they've already written her off and said, you're not really a part of the cultural majority that we're a part of. Um, So whatever your perception is, um, we're not going to necessarily listen to it. And I had this experience on, and I'm not, I promise I'm not going to get political, but I had this experience at city council a couple weeks ago where there was a very controversial issue that came up. A bunch of people came to talk about it. Um, One of the things I heard again and again and again and again were people standing up and saying, This can't be happening because I've never seen it. I've never experienced this in this city, so this can't actually be happening. And I sat there listening to all of all these people, earnest, you know, good-hearted people saying this, and I believe what they were saying is true. They haven't seen it. But for me, I was like, you you won't ever see it. That's the problem. (laughs) Is that for the culture majority, unless you're physically going out to the outer wall it's not gonna be part of your world ever. And so unless you're listening to the people that are on the outskirts saying, hey, this is what's happening to us, and then choosing to also believe them, it's not ever gonna change. Um, But I just, that, that piece of the blinders I think is so interesting that we tend to think our perception of the world is the only perception or is the right perception. Um, And I, it's interesting to me to try and hold those things in tension of like, I can see the world one way and you can see the world one way. And those can be different, and, but we can, we can maybe both hold that. <laughs> like, it, it can be true that for me, you know, it's, life is easy, and maybe for somebody else it's not. Um, and we can live in the same society and have that be the reality. And that is the reality for a lot of people, is that there's a lot of people in our society who are saying things like, hey, this is actually happening to me, and we have a cultural majority who's often saying, but we don't see it, so it can't actually be true. And then the cultural majority gets really surprised when the people that are oppressed try and rise up or do something like this, harbor spies. But it makes a lot of sense because how else are you going to affect the kind of change you want? And if you're looking at a society and thinking, I wrote down sort of the definition of oppression because I thought it was interesting, but it's an unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. So it is that power dynamic piece is really important when you're talking about oppression of the culture majority, by definition, has most of the power, the cultural and political power. Um, and so oppressed people, by definition, don't. 
Um, and that can change. Obviously, that changes in cultures all the time. But for me, that the piece that I find so interesting is like, yeah, you, you only see, you can, if you only believe the things that you've seen in your own life and you don't believe other people when they say, I had this experience or this is very common, this happens to me all the time, um, you're only going to see the world through one lane um, and not really realize that there are often, I mean, in most societies, people being left on, on the outer wall. Which is a lot of the work of this story, and I would say a majority of the scriptures, to understand that the oppressed have a voice, have a story, and that that matters within God's economy or this more beautiful way forward, as we would say, that we don't write that off. Uh, when we were talking, you reminded me of a story. It's a parable written by, I've talked about him all the time in the last few weeks, if you've been paying attention, but a guy named Peter Rollins, uh, he tells this parable um, about a king that is a part of this island, and they are a well-known, established uh, nation, but all of a sudden someone from the other side of the world is sailing across the world and, and taking over different areas of the world, and they can see that these, these enemies are coming, and these enemies are strong. They've defeated many other nations up to this point, so this king, again, kind of tries to rally the troops around him again, believing that, okay, we're going to fight this enemy, but we have been able to stand up to enemies in the past, and we are going to prevail again. So he's starting to rally the troops. They can see the army. They can see the enemy coming, and they, end, and they invite a prophet uh, to come and share with them as is a part of their culture because they believe that God is on their side. And so they're coming to this prophet to say, we're about to go to war tomorrow with this enemy that's coming, and we need to know that God is on our side, and we need to know what we can do to win this war because it's going to be bad if we don't win. And so the prophet looks at him and says, okay, I have consulted with God, I've prayed, I've fasted, and I'm sorry to tell you, but if I'm honest, God is not on your side in this battle, but God is actually on your enemy's side in this battle. I don't know what to do with that. And so there's all these counselors around the king that were saying, okay, we just need to surrender because God's on their side. And if God's on their side, we just surrender, and then maybe God's grace will we'll be okay. Or, nope, we need to get in our ships, and we need to run in the opposite direction so that we are not conquered, and we can survive this as a people and as a nation. But we cannot, we cannot come against God, and God is on their side. The king looks at his counselors, looks at the prophet, and says, I think I know what I need to do. So he calls his entire army together that night. They're going to go to battle the next morning, and everybody is terrified. They're unsure of what's going to happen. And the king says, any man who has a child at home or is newly married, go home. You are not needed for this battle. And that is a whole bunch of people within his army. And it is just weaned out substantially. And then he says, anybody over this certain age, you have lived a long life and you have served this nation up to this point. You do not need to serve this nation tomorrow. You can go home. And so another large group of people is gone. At the end of this exercise, they're looking at the night before battle at a small ragtag group of people that are about to go into battle. And everyone is terrified. And the king says, this is now our army to take on our enemy. The next morning they wake up, the enemy ships have arrived to the shore and they go to battle. And it's bloody, it's gruesome, it's awful. But to everybody's surprise, the king and this nation prevail. And their enemy is driven away, and they are on the retreat, and they leave never to come back again. The prophet and the counselors come to the king after this victory, and they say, what happened? What happened? How did we win that? God was not on our side, and yet you were able to stand up to it. What happened? And he just smiled, and he said, 
Oh, it's important to know and to understand that God is always on the side of the oppressed. And that that is a story that I think reflects and points to this idea of Christ and this biblical God over and over and over again. That God is not a God that is picking sides because of gender, race, even belief. But many times we see God and Christ choose to hear and respond to the voice of the oppressed. Peter Rollins puts it like this after telling the story. He says, the idea of the weak and the oppressed having priority in the kingdom of God can be seen in the life of Jesus. Whenever Jesus favored the tax collector over the Pharisee or the Samaritan over the religious authorities, he was not favoring one person or group above another because of what they believed. Rather, he favored certain individuals or groups because of the social position they inhabited. Don't miss what's being communicated there. He goes on. And he says, in short, it was not that Jesus had a deep love for tax collectors or Samaritans over other careers and ethnic groups. Rather, what was important was the place that the tax collector and the Samaritan held in society. Jesus was moved by the oppressed and the excluded wherever he found them, always seeking to reach out to those who had nothing and who were considered to be nothing. And I think this is seen within this story of Rahab in the battle of Jericho. That here is someone that should not have a voice because she she was a prostitute. She shouldn't have a voice. She was oppressed. And yet she is continually hailed in the hall of faith as someone significant because of her willingness to step forward in the midst of her oppression because this God is always on the side of the oppressed. So Kendra, as we kind of wrap up today, there was kind of two big things that I wanted to hear from you and I think would be important for us. When we look at this story, how does this impact for you um, what it means to be willing to hear the oppressed? Yeah, for me, I feel like that's, we had a longer conversation about this, but um, I, I talked a little bit about when we lived in Japan for a while and I, while we were there, experienced some discrimination because of gender and race. And it was very obvious to me it was not at all obvious to the people that we lived with and knew. It was not at all obvious to any Japanese person. They were all like, really? We have, this is happening? I can't believe that. Um, that really changed my perception of the importance of stories and that stories in, in and of themselves are evidence of oppression. Um, that somebody saying, this has been my experience, I, I've had these things happen to me in my life, and then to have, I think often we're like, well, what's actually the proof that you've been oppressed? It's like, that is the proof. The proof is the story often. So for me, I come back to again and again, like obviously we have to have a critical lens as well, but really trying to listen to people who are, have been marginalized in society and, and believe their stories when they tell them and say, I, just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean that it's not happening. And I, I believe that what you're saying is true. I mean, we still apply a critical eye to that, but but trying to meet people where they are and, and believe them. I can't, I can't get over that piece enough that we can all hear these stories, but if you just say, well, I've never seen that, so I, that can't actually be true, it's not going to be as impactful for either that person or for you. Yeah. And, and we talked a little bit about just in your definition of oppression, like understanding what it means to hear the voice of the oppressed. Many times we, again, we don't realize it, most of us in this room are in the cultural majority. White, middle class, have some sort of 
Christian belief potentially as a part of our lives. That is very much the cultural majority of the nation and the space that we inhabit. We live in a conservative community, white, middle-class, Christian-leaning, very much cultural majority. And so we are not in the oppressed side. And I think that's a a big piece for me. Yeah, Um, that piece we talked a lot about um, that, that sometimes for the cultural majority, creating a more just society, people will say, well, now this is oppressing me or I feel oppressed, when actually it's more like discomfort at something changing and and moving toward justice for more people. That's a very different thing. Um, And also by definition, it's, it's pretty much impossible for the cultural majority to be oppressed because there has to be that power dynamic and the cultural majority is in power. So things would have to completely switch for us for us, I think, as white middle-class people in, in general, to to actually feel the same kind of oppression. So I told you I was going to ask you this. So what do you do when you're dealing with somebody that is communicating about oppression? If Matt Blakesley feels so oppressed mm-hmm. in my beliefs, when the reality is I'm probably not oppressed, I'm just uncomfortable about what could be. And so I'm fearful of something that could be. It's not even that something is happening. How do you then hear that, and what does that look like for you? Yeah, and so I think it's the same logic has to be applied to that in a way of hearing where people are at and saying, I I understand your perspective and I understand what this feels like. Um, But at the same time, we have to put that in the context of the larger culture. And if we can look at the larger culture and say, is this moving us toward justice or away away from it? Is this moving us toward more equality or away from it? That for me is kind of the metric by which we have to adjust that. But And also I think, I do think it's our job as people in the cultural majority to say to other people in the cultural majority, what you're feeling is actually discomfort. It's something changing. It's not you losing your rights or something. It's other people being, their position being elevated. It's the walls actually dropping. So now you can see what's been happening at the outer wall all this time. and. It's uncomfortable to look at that. It doesn't feel great. And it doesn't feel great to have those people saying, like, you've been in this powerful position all this time and you've done nothing to help us. That's really difficult to take on. Um, And so back to your question of, like, I think we have to meet people where they're at, but then also try and, I, I mean, I hope, try and help them walk this path of, just because something's changing for you or the status quo is changing or we're asking for more people to be at the table, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing something in the way that people often feel. But it does feel very uncomfortable. I mean, it it will. There's a lot of growing pains, for sure. Yeah, so validate the discomfort, but but in their listening, make sure to... Yeah, I like that. So then the, the kind of final question or the final piece of the puzzle for me, because if God is always on the side of the oppressed, as this story represents, and I believe, as most scripture represents, then what does it mean for you then to be in that space of being willing to be oppressed, um, that you would make choices or decisions or use your voice in such a way that you know oppression is coming because of that choice? What does that look like for you? I think... Um I always think of this work or of any kind of like social work as like a relay and that we all kind of have our part to play. But I think picking up that baton whenever we can and carrying it as far as we can, I think is very important. Um, For me too, it's realizing like, even though I'm not in necessarily these oppressed groups in my culture now, I am in a position of leadership and in a place where I can amplify that. 
And, and that's what I see as really kind of my job, is that it's my job to say, hey, you need to listen to this story that you maybe wouldn't have heard otherwise. Um, and not, not me telling it, but saying, here's somebody who has actually lived this experience and, and kind of trying to bring them in. So for me, that's, that's kind of where I find resonance in my, how this impacts my life and the, the way I think about yeah, which sides to take, I guess. Um, uh, for me, and I think it does come back to the Bible that, yeah, Jesus was always on the side of the oppressed. And if we think about that in society, um, that isn't the position necessarily that I would say our mainstream Christian culture has taken of really actively reaching out to the people that are oppressed. That cognitive dissonance has been troubling for me, and so I feel like stories like this really remind me that no, this has been this way forever. That people speaking out against against whatever the cultural majority is, they're going to be looked down upon. They're going to be belittled. People are going to say like, "You're stupid, and you need to get out of here." Um, but the important thing is just to keep doing it. Rahab doesn't give up, right? She's she hides the spies, and then she works out a good deal for herself and. I mean, she's a smart lady. Matt asked me, he was like, do you think of yourself like Rahab? And he was like, not in a weird way. And I, but so the minute you said, I know, but the minute you said that, I thought like, gosh, I hope I'm like her. I mean, that was my feeling of, gosh, I hope so. Yeah. Jonathan, has she ever hit you out on, his, on your roof before? Because that would be, a, okay. Under flags. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can we thank Kendra for coming and sharing? Thank you so much. Thank you for Uh, As we close tonight, um, we come to this table that we do every single week, and it's a it's a picture of everything that we just talked about in so many ways. Uh, Christ is literally embodying oppression. He's literally going to the lowest of the low. There was no worse way to die or to have your life ended than by uh, Roman crucifixion. It's something everybody wanted to avoid. But there's a story and a narrative behind this work of Christ to say it's there that he meets us. It's in the midst of working to be found among the oppressed and to give your life for those around you that this story of life, beauty, Hope, love begins to resurrect and that there's this new life, just like Rahab in her story, that for her to go through that process, that there would be a new life and a new way forward for her and her family. The question tonight, I think as we come to this table, is are you hearing the voice of the oppressed? Do you even know anybody that's oppressed? (laughs) Or are we simply living our lives in the midst of the cultural majority? And then maybe for you to take this meal tonight, take a piece of bread to dip it in the cup, is asking, are you joining with the oppressed? Are you joining with this story of Christ and working and being willing to be found among the oppressed, to raise your voice and use your life in such a way that there is oppression because of your choice to say, like Rahab, I can't see my city continuing to go down the path that it's continuing to go down. And whether for you, that's your family, that's your household, that is your city, that is a country, whatever it is, but there's, there would be something in you that says, I, I just can't let this continue to be the way that it is, and I want to use my voice in such a way, even if it means that there is oppression that's coming towards me because of it. This meal is us joining together to hear and be a voice for the oppressed.
So we're going to play a song and just invite you, whenever you're ready, to come forward, take a piece of bread, to join in this story and to join in this narrative. This is the work of Christ. Whenever you're ready, feel free to come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and receive. Um, I can have the tendency to become really um, Matt-centered in how I think about my day and how I think about my week. If you ask me how I'm doing, I, I, I really easily focus on how am I doing and spend a lot of my downtime and energy thinking about me and what I want and how I want things to be. And for me, this meal tonight and this story and Kendra bringing her voice uh, to the table is a reminder to me of this invitation to live a much bigger, more beautiful story than Matt Blakesley spending all my time thinking about Matt Blakesley. But to ask the question, am I actually spending time hearing the voice of those around me, the oppressed? And am I, am I willing to find my life in that place, in that position? And I think it's usually out of laziness, out of fear of discomfort, um, just the anxiety of not knowing how things would go, that I, I, I live the far easier life of focusing so much of my energy and attention on me hearing my voice on what I want. And so wherever you are this week, I hope that this, this meal, this table, and this community would encourage you to go and to use your life, your breath, beating hard in your chest for something more than just kind of centering on ourselves and that you would work hard to find your life in and among the voice of the oppressed. I'm grateful to all of you for continuing to remind me of those kinds of things and want to invite you to hang out and have conversations and chat about what is going on in your life and hear the voices of others for what's going on in their lives and how we can be a voice for them potentially as well. Other than that, sure love you. Feel free to hang out. The bar will be open if you want to purchase something from there. So, But we will be back next week. So can we just thank Kendra one more time for all the work that she's doing? Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, if there's anything we can do for you, please reach out on social media or through our website at cmykchurch.com. Also, while there, you can find out more about who we are, where we're headed, and how you can get plugged into or give with this unique experimental church. Have a great week, and we hope to see you soon.